Do you have the strength, the skill, and the guile to survive life as a nine-year-old suburban boy? Well, let's find out with the adventures of Willie Beamish this week on the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 53 of the Upper Memory Block podcast. I'm your host, Joe, back, as always, to talk about a game from the DOS and pre-Windows XP era, as we tend to do. So I'm really happy to be with you guys uh, this time around. I I was able to fit things in. This has been kind of a crazy week, so uh, I guess it's around, it's Wednesday night right now that I'm recording, and hopefully I'll be able to get the show out uh, this same night, but... uh, I guess it's Wednesday, July 2nd, so uh, yesterday was July 1st, which for uh, the my non-Canadian listeners, of which there are quite a few of you I know, um, July 1st is Canada Day, which is the day that uh, the Confederation of Canada was founded. I guess it's more traditionally known as Confederation Day, and um, so that kind of messes up the week a little bit. It was on Tuesday, so went into work on Monday, had Tuesday off where uh, I prepped the show and all that stuff, and we did some other things, had some drinks because that's what you do on Canada Day. And uh, then on Friday, I'm actually going on vacation for a week, so uh, I basically have tonight and tomorrow night to get the show up and out to you guys, and I'm glad that uh, I'm able to sit down and do it so you don't have to wait a week like I do every now and again and get the show out late. So this one's going to be on time, which makes me really happy. Summer's here. It's beautiful. It's hot. Uh it was a bit thunderstormy, now it's okay, but uh, enough about all that. We've got a lot to talk about. Well, maybe not, but anyways, enough. I, I, I know this part of the show isn't always super entertaining, but let's talk about a little bit of news. Um, surprisingly, or at least I haven't been paying much attention, very little news uh, in the past two weeks. Uh, I know I just saw something about uh, Arena Commander multiplayer for Star Citizen come out, but I didn't have time to get into that super deeply, uh, I guess. The multiplayer aspects of that have uh, have come come out to uh, to try, but uh, without any research, I don't really want to say anything uh, definitive about it. Uh, but aside from that, the really big things that have been happening over the past two weeks are that both Steam and GOG.com had their big, massive blowout summer sales, and um, I had a lot of fun, uh, you know, seeing what was on sale. Uh, Steam had sort of a meta game going on where there were different teams, and you know, you could craft cards which would give you a badge which if your team won that day you'd get games but reddit kind of messed that up and they had a whole thing going where they would kind of make one team win all the time and uh that messed it up ever so slightly so i, I didn't really craft the badge or anything like that the one meta game that i do enjoy playing is um with my friends over at the gamers with jobs forums where uh we kind of have this fun little thing where where people basically look at each other's wish lists and and gift each other games. So it's kind of fun. You know, you get a game from somebody, it's kind of fun. You get a little gift, you gift one out. And you know, a lot of games are out there for three, four or five bucks. So it's, it's, it's kind of fun. You can send out a lot of stuff without spending a ton of cash. I know some people do end up spending quite a bit of money and um, yeah, just, just a lot of fun. And maybe I'll, uh, I maybe next sale in the winter sale, I can organize something with, uh, with you guys where we could have kind of a little, uh, steam exchange kind of thing going on but that's basically it for the news as far as i can tell so uh pretty quick this week so uh yeah let's 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 get into things you're listening to the upper memory block podcast 
Okay, so uh, one email to start off the show from Brian, and Brian writes, Hey Joe, I wanted to express my appreciation for your Rebel Assault podcast. It was well-researched, and your encyclopedic Star Wars knowledge added a lot of color and detail. I especially enjoyed your comments about production and the incredible branching path video streaming technology, which sounds even more sophisticated than YouTube in some ways. I thank you, as always, for your great podcast. I look forward to the next one. Well, thank you, Brian, and... uh, you know, honestly, I, I learned a bit of stuff in that Rebel Assault show. I didn't really realize how technologically cool uh, that whole branching video on demand thing was, especially considering, I mean, now it's kind of a joke, right? You load a different video. But uh, at the time, with the, the slowness of, uh, of, uh, of, of CD-ROMs, you know, 1x, 2x speed, very slow transfer rates, it, it was actually quite a big deal. And, and I'm glad that uh, I got to do that show and, and learn that stuff about about rebel assault and uh thanks about the the encyclopedic star wars knowledge i always worry when i do shows that are about universes that i'm into like star wars or BattleTech or star trek or things like that because i have all this background knowledge and i feel like i can go off on sort of tangents and you know people would be like get back to the game god damn it and you know quit blathering on about t-16 skyhoppers and what happened in this and you can see the wing of the skyhopper in in that scene and Luke's playing with a model and blah 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 so glad at least one person enjoyed that uh but uh yeah thank you for that Brian You're listening to the Upper Memory Block podcast time for Okay moving right along here this is probably the quickest pre-show that I've ever uh pre-show you know pre-main topic uh, portion that I've ever done so uh, it's time for the main event, even though there wasn't much uh, preamble into it. This week, uh, I'll be talking about a fun little game called The Adventures of Willie Beamish. Uh, it was developed by Dynamics. Dy- <laughs> Dynamics. Dynamics. Uh, I do this every time. We did it on the video, too. I'm pretty sure it's called Dynamics, and someone else call, someone call me out if I'm wrong. But I'm going to say Dynamics. So it was developed by Dynamics and published by our friends at Sierra Online. This game was an only child in that there was only uh, one one entry, and uh, it released in the year 1991. So onto genre. I uh, feel like I've been repeating myself, but hey, this is an adventure game. Makes sense. The time frame I cover on the show kind of coincides nicely with the heyday of uh, adventure gaming. So uh, to keep things consistent for any newcomers, let's quickly discuss what makes an adventure game an adventure game. So an adventure game, more specifically a graphical adventure game, places you, the player, in direct control of one or more hero characters who are either directly or indirectly given a quest. Now this usually occurs relatively early on in the game, though at times the true quest is only revealed kind of in stages or in parts as you play through. Uh, In an effort to make the game a bit more challenging, obstacles are obviously placed in your way. Uh, In a pure adventure game, these obstacles generally take the form of puzzles. Now, puzzles exist in a wide variety of forms. Uh, They can offer challenges in investigation, in logic, in mathematics, things like subjects like history, or simply big leaps of imagination. Uh, At times, you may need to answer a question to get through a barrier. Uh, You may need to find or improvise a key to get past a locked door, uh, find a required item, to enlist the help of an NPC, or basically anything else you can think of could can be a puzzle or an obstacle in an adventure game. 
Now, these puzzles are generally solved by exploring your environment, interacting with non-player characters, gathering, deconstructing, and combining inventory items, much, much more. Eventually, though, all the NPCs will have been spoken to, all the inventory items will have been combined, and all the puzzles will have been solved, and the quest will be completed. Uh, This is usually demonstrated in some form of climactic final sequence uh, where the heroes are triumphant and the antagonists are defeated. Adventures can have one or multiple endings. Uh, in the case of multiple endings, there are, uh, you know, they're generally determined based on decisions made at certain key points in the game. So as usual, I spent too much time talking about something we probably all already know. Let's talk some Beamish. All right, story time. And since this is an adventure game, the story is, of course, of paramount importance. As I said in the genre chat a second ago, in an adventure, we are placed in control of a character. In this case, it is one, Willie Beamish. Uh, He's a somewhat stereotypical nine-year-old boy of the early 90s. He has a skateboard, a rat tail, and he's completely obsessed with console gaming and hanging out in a treehouse with his two best friends. Basically, he's Bart Simpson to an extent. Uh, Willie is the middle child in a very stereotypical, very upper middle class American family. Uh, They live in East Frumpton, which is a uh, fictional city. And the East part is kind of the nice part of town. Uh, They have a large four bedroom house with a huge backyard, a huge Grange Rover SUV. Yes, I said that right. A Grange Rover. Uh, They have a dog, a cat and everything else you could think of when listing off items critical to the American dream. Uh, Willie's younger sister, Brianna, is a preschool prodigy. Willie's interactions with her are somewhat forced and usually consist of taking her out to the backyard and pushing her on the swing. Uh, Willie's older sister, Tiffany, starts off the game as a thin, blonde, pretty, and very angsty teenager whose main concerns in life are her weight and boys. Uh, His parents, Gordon and Sheila Beamish, are, again, stereotypical upper-middle-class suburban Americans. Sheila is an attractive and very well-maintained stay-at-home mom whose main occupations are maintaining herself and occasionally somehow taking care of her three children. Uh, She comes across pretty shallow and pretty vain. Gordon is the stereotypical upper-middle-class dad. He's a PR executive in line for a big promotion at work, which will allow the family to upgrade their lives to the next level of their American dream. More house, more car, more vacation, more parties, more, 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 more. Oh, Willie's parents love him, but they just don't know what to do about his pattern of misbehavior. Just like Ned Flanders' parents in The Simpsons, uh, (laughs) they've tried nothing and they're all out of ideas. Uh, They're reaching their breaking point, which would result in Willie being sent off to military school so he can get some discipline knocked into him. Willie's true best friend and sidekick is his pet frog named Horny. Uh, Horny spends his day in Willie's backpack and uh, his nights in a terrarium in Willie's room. Finally, every now and then, the ghost of Willie's recently deceased grandfather will appear to him, usually when he's about to do something mischievous. Uh, He acts as Willie's conscience causing him to think twice before doing something he knows will get him into trouble. As the game begins, we're treated to a cinematic. It's the last day of school at Carbuncle Elementary. The school's principal, Mr. Frick, has gathered the student body together for a final assembly before the beginning of the summer. And we, as we'll soon learn, Willie is, uh, is sort of a magnet for trouble. 
His frog pal Horny escapes from his backpack and in an amazing demonstration of his leaping ability, rockets towards Mr. Frick, lands on his head and dislodges his toupee while knocking the principal to the ground. This, of course, lands Willie in detention. The final detention on the final day of school. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So detention is the point at which we take control of Willie and, of course, a good point to start talking about the gameplay. Unlike a more traditional adventure game, uh, as I described kind of more at the beginning of the show, the adventures of Willie Beamish doesn't throw a quest in your face right at the start of the game. In fact, the real quest portion of the game only truly gets defined much later on, even like in the last day of the game. Uh, So if you don't have an overarching quest with obstacles, puzzles, and challenges... What have you got? Well, what you've got is a game that focuses on choices and consequences much more than on logic or analytical skills. So in detention, we have a few choices. The first and easiest choice is to simply endure it. Willie did the crime, so he does have the option to simply do the time. Now, this brings up a somewhat unique aspect of this game it does have a concept of the passage of chronological time. So in most adventure games, especially those from the big guys like Sierra and LucasArts, time was basically immaterial. Time in the game passed as a function of solving the puzzles or other general progression through the game's story. If you left the game running for eight hours with your character standing in one spot, nothing much would really change. In Willy Beamish, time passes. Pop open your inventory screen by clicking on Willy. In the top corner, you'll see a date and a time. At certain points in the game, Willy has to be in a certain place for a certain time or he'll face dire consequences. The most consistent example of this is at the end of each day, Willy needs to be home and in bed by a certain time. If he isn't, his trouble-o-meter goes up a notch. The trouble-o-meter, since I mentioned it, is another unique aspect of this game. As I said, Willy is faced with many choices in the game. Most of them involve routine situations that a nine-year-old boy is generally faced with. Should he do his chores? Should he prank his sisters? Should he stay out past curfew? Simple stuff like that. Now, if he makes the quote-unquote wrong choice, that is the choice that causes trouble, the trouble-o-meter raises at least one notch. For a more major offense, it can go up more than one notch at a time. The meter is represented by a thermometer with seven levels. At the bottom, we have good boy. This is as good as it gets. Uh, Going up the chain, we have okay, uh uh-oh, not good, big trouble, watch out, and finally, cadet school. If you do enough wrong and the meter hits cadet school, it's literally game over. Your parents no longer know what to do with you and ship you off to military school where your gentle and carefree soul will be crushed. UI-wise, this is a very early example of an almost single-click interface. Uh, Right-clicking allows us to switch the cursor between basically two main modes, an inspection mode where you can look at things, which is represented by a magnifying glass, and then just kind of a standard action cursor. You also can't really move Willy around the screen at will. You can only move him to hot spots and uh, onto scene exit points. So there's no kind of Sierra-style look, talk, walk, taste icons, and there's no LucasArts-style action verbs. There's just... Literally look and do or use or whatever. At times, there are some other things that pop up like crosshairs in a couple of places where you get to shoot objects at other objects and things like that. But generally, it's just these two icons. So back to detention. 
as I said, we can make a few choices here, which are informed by a combination of our general cleverness and some inventory items that we find. First things first, let's try talking our way out of things. Mrs. or sorry, Ms. Glass, the decrepit old teacher supervising detention, doesn't seem like she's much of a negotiator, but let's give it a try. We do convince Miss Glass that we're not feeling well and we get sent to the nurse's office. Now, this little event, being sent to the nurse's office, that is, uh, is the first time we really start thinking that this game might not be geared 100% towards kids, even though you're playing a nine-year-old. Uh, the school nurse is blonde with ridiculously massive boobs. Uh, there's certainly a few other nods to more mature themes in the game as well, not the least of which is that your pet frog's name is Horny. I know it's kind of a play on Horny Toad and all that, but uh, it's pretty blatant. Uh, there's even a point in the game where Horny, well, gets pretty horny. Uh, <laughs> so with the nurse, you've got two choices. Choice one is that you really play up your fake illness. Now, if you do this, frankly, it doesn't turn out too well. Willie gets shipped off to the hospital, and again, it's game over. Uh, if you say you're better, you get sent back to detention. Now, though, it seems that Miss Glass has had enough of paying attention to things and is falling asleep at her desk. Again, you can be a good boy and sit it out. But what's the fun in that? Uh, sneaking out of class, you try and make a break for the exit. Of course, you don't make it. You're stopped by Coach Belts, who demands to see your hall pass. Of course, because we're figuring things out as we go along, we don't have a hall pass. Without a hall pass, uh, you get sent to the principal's office where you endure another discipline session from Mr. Frick. So here, you get to decide how to act with the principal. Uh, you can be a little jerk to him and refuse to return his toupee, which has miraculously ended up in your backpack, also known as your inventory. Uh, if you don't, Give it back to him, however. You will peak your trouble-o-meter and head straight to military school. Uh, you can still be smart, kind of a smart-ass a little bit, but you just got to give him his damn hair by the end of the day. So once you're done with Principal Frick and you haven't been sent to military school, um, it's back to detention. So you can still get out. Miss Glass is still nodding off, but you need a hall pass. Well, let's see if there's anything in our desk that can help us out. So looking inside, we find a white crayon and a pass looking block of wood uh scrawling hall pass on that block of wood we exit class again and are again faced with coach belts he asks us what we're doing and uh basically even with a hall pass we can't just leave school so the best solution here is to again lie and say that you are going to the bathroom of course there's no rest for willie as he makes his way into the bathroom we see spider willie's bully and he is smoking in the boys room uh this run-in if everything goes according to plan, uh, costs Willie his Game Boy analog device. I can't remember quite what it's called, but it's basically a Game Boy. Uh, <laughs> and allows him to give it to Spider and tell him that he can now go play with himself. Again, another little adult nod. Uh, refusing to give Spider something from your pack or giving him something that he doesn't like from your pack results in a beating and again, a game over. So as we can see, even though this is a Dynamics game, not a pure Sierra adventure, it holds true to the savorly, save-often mythos of Sierra adventure game design. In a lot of cases, making the bad choice isn't a game-ender, but in some choices, in some situations, as we've seen uh, in this beginning part, uh, most certainly is. Also, occasionally the good boy choice that doesn't get you in trouble won't be quite as obvious as it is right now. So after his run-in with Spider, 
Uh, the hall is clear, and Willie can duck out and get home early. So what was the point of all this when we could have just waited it out and gone home when detention was over? Well, since we got home early, before Willie's parents did, his report card is still hanging out of the mail slot. Now, this is our first truly moral choice in the game. So had you waited things out, it would have been too late and this opportunity wouldn't wouldn't have arisen. Now, Willie says to us, in kind of his internal monologue, that he knows he's going to get in trouble from his parents because he got a C, or maybe it was a C plus, in music appreciation class. So he can leave his report card there for his parents to pick up, or he can grab it and stash it in his backpack. If you go for it, and take this report card, we meet your grandfather's ghost, uh, casually known as Ghost Beamish. Uh, He strongly suggests that you show your report to your parents in his role as your conscience. He also warns you that he thinks something is afoot in the city of Frumpton. So you then enter the house and the game progresses. You meet Willie's family and find out that Willie's main goal for his vacation is to get into the Nintari Championships. Uh, Nintari being his favorite game console and is kind of an amalgamation of Nintendo and Atari kind of smashed together. Uh, The game looks pretty crappy, but it's 1991 and it looks about equivalent to a a 1991 era console game. I think his favorite game that we see is called Monster Squad. So Willie's aspirations of uh, Nintari fame and fortune um, are put in jeopardy as a result of his bad grade which his parents discover whether or not Willie tries to hide it. Uh, as a result of that, his gaming privileges are revoked, so he can't actually practice for the Nintari Championships. To further complicate his life, his father ends up losing his job, which obviously puts the entry fee, which I believe is $2,500 or something. It's not like a trivial entry fee. It obviously puts that in jeopardy. So the game continues on with Willie, Horny, and even his father being placed into mortal danger at times. His adventures take Willie to the pizza parlor, his treehouse, and over to dangerous West Frumpton, where he enters a frog jumping contest and eventually learns of a scheme between the owner of the town's biggest employer and the president of the local plumbers union chapter, a scheme which, of course, he plays an integral role in foiling. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Okay, tech focus time. So to play Willie Beamish, you need the following. MS-DOS 5.0 or higher, a 286 or better CPU, 512K of RAM, 8.5 megabytes of hard disk space, and a mouse. Graphically, we're looking at standard VGA at 320 by 200 pixels and a palette of 256 colors. Now come the dev story, uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about the graphics and how they're a little bit more special than that because that all sounds very regular, but um, we'll leave that for the dev story. Uh, from an audio hardware perspective, 
The game supported the Pro Audio Spectrum, the AdLib, the Roland MT32, and its various other forms like the LAPC-1 and the CM whatever and the blah blah blah. And of course, the venerable Sound Blaster. Now, much as you might think that this is a Sierra game since Dynamics had been acquired by Sierra around 1990, uh, Willie Beamish did not run on either the AGI or SCI adventure game engines we've talked about repeatedly on this show with all the uh, Star.Quest games. Uh, the Adventures of Willy Beamish was built on the Dynamics Game Development System or DGDS engine. As with most game engines we've discussed, DGDS was built alongside the game Rise of the Dragon. Uh, the main design goals of the Dynamics Game Development System were simple and not really very revolutionary. Firstly, they wanted a game engine that supported a very simple-to-use point-and-click interface. In 1989 and 1990, when this stuff was kind of, you know, being in development, uh, point-and-click UIs were still relatively new. Secondly, as with SCUM, AGI, and SCI, uh, they wanted a relatively simple internal editing system for content that could be used by non-programmers to create art, sound, and event assets to actually build a real game. Now, the engine was designed to work across a network so that multiple game designers could use it all at once. Again, this was somewhat unusual at the time. A lot of offices didn't even have networks. Uh, DGDS allowed non-programmers to add assets to uh, the Game Central repository. These included things like event triggers, long branching conversation trees, animation, and hooks to any custom code that the actual programmers had to write up to support more complex interactions that the game engine couldn't handle kind of on its own. Uh, the engine also supported CGA, EGA, and VGA graphics with uh, external tools that would downgrade the uh, top level, let's say 256 color VGA, down to EGA 16 colors and CGA 4 colors. I think CGA was the one that was like white and purple and pink and blue or something, if I remember right. I didn't have much experience with CGA. It was a bit before my time. Uh, anyways, development of... DGDS was uh, was a very iterative process. The creative team would develop the game itself while the technical team developed the engine. Uh, representatives of those two teams would meet regularly to make sure that features of the engine were in line with the needs of the designers. It was all kind of very, very nice, very reasonable. Uh, DGDS would continue iterating and improving across the development of all four games that it powered, the third of which was Willy Beamish. Uh, from a musical perspective, DGDS aside, uh, the game's soundtrack was composed by Chris Stevens, Don Latarski, and Jan Moorhead. Or maybe Jan Moorhead, I don't know, J-A-N. Sounds like Jan to me. Uh, anyways, it's a great, upbeat, early 90s rock-type score that translated very well to MIDI and uh, reproduced wonderfully while I was playing on my MT32. Uh, it also sounded great on other devices, and uh, from what I heard, was even pretty passable on the PC speaker. Uh, There's quite a bit of music in this game. Heck, the full soundtrack from Quest Studios is two hours long. Uh, when I prep the show, I usually listen to the soundtrack and, uh, you know, to kind of get me in the mood, if you will. And uh, this one has actually turned into one of my favorites. It's, it's a lot of fun and it's great kind of well you work sort of background music.
You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Okay, time for everyone's favorite, the development story. And now, Jeff Tunnel is the man who is responsible for Willie Beamish. I talked about him quite a bit already back in August of 2012 on episode 24 covering uh, The Incredible Machine. In that episode, and I think back even further, and I think it might have been episode 9 or something, uh, the episode on Red Baron, uh, I went over the early history of Dynamics from its founding in 1984 by Jeff Tunnell and Damon Sly in Eugene, Oregon. Uh, They released quite a few games, including the popular Arctic Fox. Around 1989, Dynamics kind of encountered some financial troubles, and uh, Sierra founder and president Ken Williams expressed interest in uh, fully acquiring the company to kind of bring their background of simulation and their three-space engine and all that stuff um, into the Sierra fold, if you want. More details about that, go back, listen to uh, Red Baron, listen to Incredible Machine, and you will get your fill of early Dynamics history. So this was done all in 1990. They got acquired by Sierra. And uh, despite the fact that Dynamics was known for their simulation games up to this point, at the time of acquisition, they actually had three adventure games on the books. Uh, The first of which was Rise of the Dragon. Uh, This game had been in the concept stage since 1988. It released in 1990, along with the first version of, uh, of DGDS. It was followed in 1991 by Heart of China and Improvements again, to, to, the, uh, to the game engine. I uh, should probably cover both of these games at some point. They look pretty cool. I, I've never played them myself, but uh, from screenshots and stuff that I saw, they, they, look, they look quite interesting, actually. So during the development of these other two adventure games, Jeff Tunnel started thinking about the third game that Dynamics would put out. Uh, the previous two adventures they had done were very sort of photorealistic. Uh, Tunnel thought, though, that the PC was a great platform for an interactive cartoon. Now, at this point, DGDS was very stable. It was kind of entering its, its third iteration, and the uh, designers at Dynamics were, were pretty comfortable with it. Tunnel describes using DGDS as equivalent to using a camera and film. From a technical angle, he directed, at this point, the DGDS developers to attempt to add in support for cell-animated graphics just like you'd see kind of in a, in a Disney cartoon. Now, this hadn't ever been done before in an adventure game. Most games of the late 80s and early 90s attempted to go for realism or someplace in between realism and animation with relatively low-res characters and, and stuff like that. If you think back to kind of, you know, Space Quest and stuff and King's Quest and Leisure Suit Larry, you know, the, the characters themselves, like Roger Wilco, you couldn't really see his face very well. And it was just because of, of the resolution and and the type of realism they were going for, it just wasn't really possible. Now, because of that, or I don't know if because of that or as a result of the technology, none of these game engines, these existing game engines, could really handle actual traditional cell animation. So at the same time as as the development team was kind of working on supporting this this cell animation idea, Tunnel went out to find some, as he put them, quote-unquote, Hollywood writers to help him come up with story ideas. Well, it turns out that Tony and Meryl Perutz, former writers for NBC and Family Home Entertainment, had just moved up to Eugene from L.A. and were happy to come on board. Uh, The Perutzes drafted the story along with Tunnel. Uh, They would have story meetings where Tony and Meryl would come up with ideas, which Tunnel would then filter down into something doable in uh, 
the framework of, uh, of an adventure game. So building upon the cell animation tech and the story being developed, Jeff went out and hired artist Sherry Wheeler, who had worked for both Filmation and Disney. She and Jeff began putting Willie and his world down on paper, coming up with ideas for what everything would look like and how you know the whole world would kind of interact. Once the concepts were finalized, Sherry brought on two more artists, Renee Garcia and Pat Clark. Apparently, it wasn't incredibly challenging to find former Disney artists to hire. Uh, apparently, Disney's policy, at least at the time, and probably still is today, uh, was to stock up on animators and artists for the duration of a big project, say like, you know, The Lion King or something, and then lay them all off at the end. As it turns out, uh, the process of creating art assets for the game was somewhat time-consuming. Uh, once the story was finalized, it was storyboarded, just as an animated feature would be. Once the storyboards were approved, uh, the team of artists, which had expanded to a total of seven, would draw and paint backgrounds. Most of them were hand-painted, then scanned in and touched up and painted using an internal tool developed for just that purpose. Uh, the same process was done for character animations, except they were scanned in and stitched into animated sequences called aims. These aims were then laid over the backgrounds and could be rolled forward and rolled back for tweaking and, and, and all that. So it took almost a year and a full team of over 40 people, most of which had something to do with art assets. According to Tunnel, there were only about five programmers on the project. Uh, but after that time, The Adventures of Willie Beamish released to great critical success, even making the cover of Computer Gaming World because of the incredible advance in cell animation in a PC game. Uh, though at this point, Tunnel had moved on to forming his own small dev team, uh, Jeff Tunnel Productions, which would go on to do The Incredible Machine and all that, uh, he directed that Willie Beamish should be worked on again, this time taking advantage of the new CD-ROM format. Also, he didn't want to do what everyone else was doing and simply re-release the game with some poor voice acting. He wanted to expand sale the sales base into the console market by leveraging the new Sega CD. Well... Turns out that uh, this was easier said than done. Uh, the first part was pretty easy. The Willie Beamish CD, Sega CD team, hired pro voice actors to voice the 42 speaking roles in the game. That was the only easy part, though. Uh, firstly, challenge-wise, Sega was very uncooperative in the whole process. Uh, it took quite a long time for the team to receive their Sega CD dev kits. And uh, once that actually happened, the recording of dialogue commenced. That went well, like I said, but uh, the digitizing of the recordings and the syncing of those voice recordings to lip movements in games was very, very time-consuming. In fact, because the original game uh, just had you know text-based, uh, a text-based system, uh, the bulk of the in-game kind of character interaction and discussion code had to be rewritten to support this lip synchronization and all that. So that was a whole crap ton of work. Uh, the MIDI soundtrack was also digitized, and it sounds it sounds quite good. Uh, one other major hurdle, which remained unresolved in the Sega CD version and uh, kind of became its its Achilles heel, was loading times. So the Sega CD featured a very slow single speed CD-ROM. We're not even talking a two X here. This is a single speed CD-ROM. It spins at the same speed as your CD player. This CD-ROM, obviously, uh, with its slow transfer rate, really had an effect on, uh, on loading data. Uh, the main reason for this slowdown was attributed to the fact that the data on the CD was not optimized. 
So if you remember, or if you did listen back to the uh, missed episode, I discussed how that team took the data and placed it on the CD in a sequential manner. This allowed the drive to access data without moving the laser CD read head very far for each read. So you see, a hard disk, or even a floppy disk to a lesser degree, is designed as a random read device. Uh, This means that it's optimized to read data from anywhere on the disk with some overhead, but frankly, not very much. A CD, as it was originally designed to store music, is a sequential read device. So think of a CD as basically a modern version of the LP, the vinyl record. The laser in the CD drive is equivalent to the needle on your turntable. So say you want to listen to track one on a record. You'd place the needle at the beginning and play track one. Well, then what if you wanted to listen to track eight? Well, you'd have to pick up the needle and find all little gaps and move it over to the start of track eight. Now, What if suddenly you wanted to listen to two minutes and 54 seconds into track three? Well, then you'd have to pick up the needle, find track three, and figure out about where 254 is on the third track. Now, each of these moves, as you may expect, is very time consuming. Now, the same problem happens on a CD, except it's a motor moving the the needle or the laser around instead of you you and your hand and your eyes. So since the data on the Willy Beamish CD wasn't placed in any sort of sequential order, they just kind of copied it on there as they would with a floppy disk, uh, the drive had to move the laser head around everywhere to load data. Now this caused major load delays of what looks like 10, at least 10 to 20 seconds, if not more from the, uh, from the YouTube videos that I watched. Uh, it was to the point where the development team added in a laser ball mini game which you could, you, where there were uh, like these, these kind of ball, 3D balls that you could rotate around. And you could load that at any time by pressing the start button, even when data was loading from the drive. This supposedly helped pass the time while you were waiting for screens to load. It was really, really, really long. Now, I'm not sure, and at least I couldn't find any solid evidence, but I don't believe that the Sega CD version was ever backported over to the PC. So the the voice acting and the new music and all that stuff was was never released on this on the PC as far as I can tell. So if you want to hear speech, you'll need to find the Sega CD version and find a way to emulate it. The process was so difficult and the retail sales ended up being low enough that Tunnel states that he would not have made the decision to do the port, kind of looking back in hindsight. So, what does the future hold for Willie Beamish? Well, in interview, Tunnel has said that uh, at one point he had actually written up a story treatment for a sequel and even designed a few puzzles, but the idea never took really took off. Uh, when asked if we'd be seeing a Kickstarter for a new Beamish game, he unequivocally said no. Uh, he said he has no interest in reviving the series. He loves the characters, but feels it isn't something he really wants to revisit. He said it's one of those things that he feels is best left in its original form. Hi, I'm Francisco Ruiz, and together with my good friend Paul Powers and a rotating guest host, we make up the Retro Rewind podcast. Twice a month, we pick a movie or video game from 15 or more years ago and discuss whether it is still worth revisiting today. 
So if you've thought about rewatching The Rocketeer, playing back through Mega Man X, or you're just a child of the 70s and 80s like us, you should check us out for laughs, for nostalgia, and definitely for our take on what's a classic and what's second class. Find us at RetroRewindPodcast.com, where you can subscribe on iTunes, RSS, and more. So, where can you get your hands on Willie Beamish today? Well, like last week, as far as I can tell, nowhere. I had to get this game via Sources. Uh, uh, Frankly, I'm a bit surprised it isn't available via GOG as other Sierra games are. But, uh, you know, if you want to try it, just Google. It's not that hard to find. You just can't get it legally anywhere in digital download form. You can also go look on eBay and all that stuff for a box. But, uh, yeah. So before we uh, we get we get to the end here, get to my verdict, we have one more email from Ryan, and he writes, Hi, Joe. I first found your podcast back in March when it was mentioned on the Space Quest Historians podcast. I started with episode one and have been listening to them all. You've cost me a lot of money on GOG.com as I've been buying up most of the games you talk about that I haven't played before. I cannot wait to play Gabriel Knight. I remember asking my parents for it, but never getting it. Uh, I've got it installed now, and I just need to find the free time to play it. I am now on episode 47 with Beneath a a Steel Sky. Man, I've got to play this game. It sounds amazing. So I should be caught up by your next episode. I've been so excited to email in, as a huge majority of the games you've covered are the ones that I grew up with and have very fond memories of. Your last episode, Rebel Assault, was definitely one I have good memories of playing with my friends on weekends, and I can't wait to get to listen to that episode to see if it holds up and if it's available to play again. I just recently followed you on Facebook, and you just posted that you're going to Twitch, Willie Beamish, so as I type this, I'm watching you play right now. Wow, the memories. I remember this game being awesome. It just might, it just, it might, that might just be me being 10 years old at the time, though. Uh, It's feeling a bit more childish than I remember. I was originally thinking I'd want to replay it, but after watching you, I think I got my fill. Can't wait to hear your full verdict. Thanks to all these amazing games you cover, I ended up becoming a software engineer. I had dreams of working at Sierra. Of course, that didn't work out, but uh, I still have aspirations of making an adventure game at some point in my life. I've actually been working on learning Unity because I saw Hero U and Space Venture guys are using it for their games. Uh, I'm almost finished with my fourth casual game and hope to start on a simple adventure game soon. I'm drawing on inspiration from a very small indie adventure game called Serena. Have you heard of it? It takes 30 to 60 minutes to play. It's voiced by Josh Mandel, who voiced King Graham in the King's Quest series and was the designer of Space Quest VI and Freddy Farkas. Speaking of Hero U, you must cover Quest for Glory at some point. I've replayed those games an uncountable number of times. They are all my favorite. They are my all-time favorite adventure games. I'll definitely email in more often now that I'm just about caught up. Thank you so much for doing the podcast. Well, thank you, Ryan. And, um, you know, it's funny. I think a lot of these games are also the reason I became a software developer. And I also kind of had that dream that, oh, you know, I'm going to go work for Sierra and I'm going to make awesome video games and whatever. Um, Didn't really turn out to be the case. I'm a web guy. I do business programming and database stuff and you know it's it's definitely a lot less interesting than uh than game design probably a lot less stressful too i mean there's still deadlines and stuff but game development is like crazy town um as for serena yes i i do uh i do know about it i have it in my steam library uh i haven't gotten around to playing it just yet i know uh i know trolls a space quest historian and kind of all those all the people in the uh current shall we say adventure gaming community were were heavily involved it was kind of a really great 
group effort and um you know, I should talk about it one day. Trolls, hey, if you wanna if you wanna send me a little uh, a little note up about Serena, maybe I'll feature it as kind of a little segment at one point. But uh, you know, maybe when I'm on vacation, I'll, I'll I'll have my Mac along. I think it's Mac compatible, and uh, maybe I'll give it a whirl because uh, I've definitely definitely been meaning to. So thanks so much, uh, thanks so much for that. Quest for Glory is on the short list. I think that and Larry are kind of the main line Sierra adventures that I haven't uh, haven't covered yet. And uh, yeah, keep on emailing, keep on listening. Thank you, thank you very much. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So does The Adventures of Willie Beamish hold up today? That was funny. When I started playing the game, I was going to say no. But the more I played, the more the design aspects of the game really grew on me. As I said, I went in remembering this as a fairly standard Sierra-style adventure game with some slightly different graphics. Well, it's, it, it's not. It's really quite different. Yes, you can die a lot, which, which is a bit disturbing considering you're playing a nine-year-old suburban boy. Yes, you need to save your game all the time. Yes, if you forget something in the beginning, you can get yourself into an unwinnable state. These are all hallmarks of Sierra adventures. However... As I've said already, unlike other adventures, this isn't really a puzzle game. This is about you putting yourself into the shoes of a nine-year-old and making decisions for him. Each decision has consequences. Sometimes the consequences are dangerous. It's, it's this aspect of the game that I find incredibly interesting. Now, yes, I do think the dialogue is a bit kiddish. And I'm not sure if this was done by choice by the writers to kind of put us in Willie's mindset or it was just lazy writing. Uh, that aside, there's actually quite a bit of subtlety here. This game's setting and a lot of its characters are a parody of this sort of idyllic suburban lifestyle that was the goal of the early 90s. You know, Willie's dad can't see that he's putting himself in a dangerous situation because he's just chasing the next promotion. His older sister and mom are hardcore consumers only concerned with their looks. Uh, it seems the only person who can actually see what's going on in this town is a nine-year-old boy who's constantly getting in trouble. Uh, the graphics, well, a little bit jaggy now, look pretty damn good. And uh, aside from a few annoying Sierra-esque timer puzzles, uh, the gameplay is is fairly straightforward and frankly a lot of fun. Uh, the music is tons of fun and there's a lot of it. Overall, this is a very rich looking and rich sounding game experience. Frankly, it's all very interesting. And, uh, you know, if you can get over some of the writing... I really do think this game is worth a look. Is it the greatest adventure game in the history of the world? Is it the pinnacle of anything? No, but it does a lot of things right, and it does a lot of interesting things in interesting ways. So, like I said, give her a look. Okay, so before I end the show, uh, it's been a long time since I've done a giveaway. So... I think it's time to do one. Uh, I recently started putting up the back catalog of shows on YouTube, starting back with episode one from like you know two and some odd years ago uh, on Sam and Max. So in honor of episode one on Sam and Max and because of the GOG sale, uh, I got my hands on the three Telltale Sam and Max games. So that's Sam and Max, The Devil's Playhouse, Sam and Max Save the World, and Sam and Max Beyond Time and Space. So as usual with these giveaways, just drop an email to podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com with the subject line, Sam and Max giveaway. And in a show or two, I will pick a winner and, uh, and fire you off the, uh, 
the gift email. Now this is GOG, so ideally it would be good if you don't already have any of these games because if you do, then it'll let you take the ones that you do have and kind of destroy the one you do have or the ones that you don't have and destroy the one you do have. So uh, ideally, make sure you don't have the games or if you want them again and you have them on Steam, that's cool, but whatever. Apply <laughs> or send in an email and uh, I'll choose someone and uh, and send it off. So that's that for another show. Thanks to everyone who contributed as always. Next time, I'm going to visit uh, something I haven't visited in quite a while, and that is a Sid Meier game. Nope, not doing Civilization. I am going to talk about Sid Meier's Pirates. So this should be a lot of fun. As always, send your email and audio comments to podcast.umbcast.com in addition to your entry for the giveaway. Uh, thanks, as always, to Rick Moyer for his great audio work. You can find his stuff over at moyermultimedia.com. He's a really great guy that does incredibly professional work. Check out the show notes for this show and all the other episodes at umbcast.com. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash umbcast. You can find the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash umbshow and me personally at twitter.com slash billybob476. Uh, you can also find the show on YouTube at youtube.com slash umbcast where I put up my gameplay sessions amongst other miscellaneous things. Subscribe to the show on iTunes. Stream us live at Stitcher Radio. So that's that, and I will see you next time for Pirates here in the Upper Memory Block. Battle control terminated. You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastroianni. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Join us.